Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. Today, we have part two of the episode with Professor David Purser on smoke toxicology and toxic hazards related to fires. If you've somehow missed part one, I highly recommend to listen to that before this episode. But no matter if you did listen to that part or not, I hope this episode is full of value and really worth uh, your time. So uh, you're highly invited to listen to this. In the part two, we are discussing some more advanced concepts of toxicity, like the toxicity of combined uh, multiple toxic species. We're covering the differences between irritants and asphyxians in fires. And then we, in the end, we move into modeling and how this may be used in real case studies. So I think it's, it's again, full of value. It's a pure pleasure to learn about toxic hazards from Professor David Purser, one of the most renowned uh, scientists in fire of all times, I guess, and uh, this year's recipient of Howard's Emmons uh, plenary lecture at the IFSS in Tsukuba as going to happen in October in Japan. So I don't think it needs more introduction. Please join me in another lesson on toxicology from Professor David Purser. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wyszynski and I will be your host. The podcasting journey is not an easy one and there were better and worse times. A lot of work behind the scenes and sometimes some difficult decisions. But today, looking back, I'm so happy I've continued this pathway because it led me to a place where I can talk about toxicity with David Purser. This is simply amazing. And I can really tell you I'm super excited to, to see where the podcast got me. And of course, a huge difference in how this works was brought when uh, OFR consultants partnered with me. And as always, I would like to express my gratitude towards them. OFR Consultancy is a multi-award winning independent consultancy dedicated to addressing fire safety challenges. OFR is the UK's leading fire risk consultancy and its globally established team has developed a reputation for preeminent fire ex- engineering expertise with colleagues working across the world to help protect people, property and planet. Their work is also international and it ranges from the Antarctic to the Atacama Desert in Chile and a number of projects in Africa. In 2023, OFR is growing its team. And if you're looking for a new fire engineering career or some challenges to work on really exciting projects, head towards OFRconsultants.com to learn more. And now, back to the hyped episode with David Purser. What about the combined effects of other toxicants? Because now we were discussing extensively carbon monoxide. Uh, You had experiments on primates. I assume there was uh, a lot of data from uh, other mammal species. What about other common pollutants like HCN? And what about these more complex organic compounds that you said they're forming in great numbers? Right. Yeah. So I think think a useful way of thinking about this is that during fires and fire hazards, the first effects on people are essentially physiological. And the physiological effects... Oh, the sort of incapacitating effects mm. on the brain and the circulation, things that threaten your ability to move around and your, your immediate survival. And that's mm. physiology. So it's part, of, it's part of toxicology, but it's the physiological effects. And these physiological effects occur within 
short time scales of seconds to half an hour or so, that kind of time scale during the, during the actual fire. The other set of effects, which are more pathological effects, are where you inhale some substance that damages your tissues, then your lungs or somewhere else in the body. And these effects usually manifest themselves sometime after you've been exposed. So typically, people who've been exposed to some of these lung irritant species of chemicals in a fire don't show any symptoms at the time, but two or three hours later, they start to have inflammation of the lungs and edema of the lung, which is fluid buildup on the lung, and breathing difficulties. And these effects can be fatal, or they can, depending on their exposure, they can recover. So that's, that's a sort of tissue-damaging pathological effect. And I think we need to distinguish between these two. Okay. Right, so the ones that are, if you like, immediately most important during a fire are the asphyxiant gases, which we talked about, and the physiological effects of those asphyxiant gases, and the immediate sensory effects of the irritants, the effects on the nose and the eyes and that kind of thing, which are pretty well immediate and concentration-related. They're not really dose-related. So if we think about the asphyxiant gases, we did quite a bit of work on carbon monoxide. There's so many thousands of papers on that. It's been very well researched. Somewhat less information on cyanide, but we have quite a good understanding of cyanide, which is another asphyxiant gas, works in a somewhat similar way to CO. But the difference is that CO mainly affects the carriage of oxygen in the blood and its delivery to the tissues, whereas cyanide stops you using the oxygen in your body cells once the oxygen gets there. So they're a slightly different mechanism, but the end result is the same. And there's a big debate, really, and, and, and I don't think it's fully settled as to how much these two gases are additive. But the, the general impression we've got from rodent experiments that were done in the United States and some of my work are that we treat them as fractionally additive. So if you inhale half an incapacitating dose of carbon monoxide and half an incapacitating dose of cyanide, 0.5 plus 0.5 equals 1, you're reaching the point of collapse. Okay, so we think we treat those things as additive. Carbon dioxide, if anything, makes carbon monoxide less toxic biochemically in the body. And so it's wrong really to add to have an additive term for carbon dioxide and carbon okay. dioxide. But carbon dioxide has one very, very important effect, which I've mentioned earlier, is that it makes you breathe more. And so I use it as a multiplicative term to show if you double the amount of breathing, then you double the rate of uptake of CO mm -hmm. and cyanide. Okay? So that's the way I believe we should bring carbon dioxide in. Carbon dioxide itself is toxic if you inhale 10% or 7%, which is a very high concentration. But that's a sort of separate mechanism. So it's not really additive with the other gases. Um, oxygen depletion is probably overall additive to the asphyxia, so that's treated as an additive term. So we, we have this sort of approach to assessing the combined effects of those asphyxiant gases. And I think it's fairly robust. I think it's quite mm -hmm. good. Okay? okay. Then we come to the irritants, and that's where it's much, much more complicated because the number of potentially irritant compounds is huge. And we don't even really know what they are. Now, years ago, I did all these experiments in mice, exposed mice to combustion product atmospheres and to individual irritant chemicals. And we have a, a measure of sensory irritancy. This is the immediate painful mm -hmm. irritant effects of exposure in mice. And it's called the mouse RD50 test. And it's RD stands for respiratory mm -hmm. depression. 
And what happens there is if you get an individual irritant compound like hydrogen chloride gas, which is an acid gas, if you expose mice, we have a group, usually have a little group of four mice, and you measure their breathing rate with a little device. So the mice are breathing away two or 300 breaths a minute, and you start to expose them to, say, 100 parts per million of hydrogen chloride in the air that they're inhaling, then there's a reflex decrease in their breathing mm -hmm. rate. And so what we do in the test is we measure the percentage decrease in breathing rate, and we expose the animals to different concentrations until we compute the concentration, the inhaled concentration of that particular gas, which will cause a 50% decrease in breathing rate in the mice. And that's called the RD50 concentration. And for hydrogen chloride, that's 308 parts per million. Oh, okay. That's, a, that's not much. No, no. We earlier were talking about incapacitation doses. Of course, yeah, doses, yeah. not concentration of 30,000 per minute. Yeah. 30,000 ppm minutes uh, for uh, CO. So now we're at 300 ppm just uh, concentration. There's that's, uh, two orders of magnitude. Uh, right. Now you will, yeah, you raise a very good point. And let me just try and clarify that. Yeah. Right. Let's take CO. What, what, what concentrations of CO are we worried about? Concentrations okay. now. So yeah. I would say that typically in a fire, you can go with anything from zero to percent levels of carbon monoxide with your face when you're in a fire in smoke in a building. So typically, the highest level you might be exposed to is about 10,000 parts per million, right, of carbon monoxide. Uh, and you might be exposed to 1,000 parts per million of hydrogen cyanide, depending on the scenario you're in. That's the high level. But the low level is going to be somewhere near zero. You know, it's going to be anywhere in that range, depending on the dilution and all the rest of it. If you are inhaling 10,000 ppm of CO, 1%, then you've got about three minutes or so until you collapse. If you're breathing 1,000 ppm of CO, which is pretty typical of you, you might meet in rooms in a building where there's a fire, then you're okay for about half an hour or so before you've inhaled a dose, you collapse. Because carbon monoxide, you can't detect it, the immediate effect of inhaling 10,000 ppm of carbon monoxide is nothing. You, you'll be totally unaware that it was there if that would bring we, we, that in We there. call it the, the silent killer in it's Poland. totally silent. And to some extent, the same thing happens with cyanide. It's not, it's not painful to be exposed to. You, you wouldn't really be aware of it. These asphyxiant gases are very insidious in that respect. Mm. But the irritant gases have two different, completely different effects. So the first effect of an irritant gas, like hydrogen chloride, is it has immediate concentration-related painful effect. So there's no time, time, the time it takes to get there. Is a, there is a very minimal dose, the time it takes for a certain amount of hydrochloride to dissolve in the cornea of your eye, you know, onto the surface film of your eye. So, mm -hmm. so it's very, very quick. It, it's within seconds that you get the effect. And the effect depends on, so, so the effect is very much a concentration-related effect. And it, it probably relates, we think it relates to the log of the concentration. So if you, if you inhale 100 parts per million, 100 parts per million of hydrogen chloride, I've got some sort of semi-anecdotal accounts from human exposures to that, that that is extremely painful to be exposed to, 100 ppm. So if that was in the smoke, it's likely to have quite an adverse effect on you in addition to the visual effects of the smoke. So, so you would feel severe pain at 100, uh, where you mentioned the lethal dose was 300, just a few minutes. No, not lethal, no. So the, oh, sorry. It's all right. yeah, this is, this is quite important. So, so we want an objective measure. Okay. 
And it's very difficult. So the tool, the, if you like, the objective tool we have is the mouse test. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, there's a, a famous scientist in the United States called Eve Allery, who did a lot, a lot of work on this. He was at the University of Pittsburgh, and he exposed lots of animals to a whole range of irritant chemicals, a choline, formaldehyde, etc. And he measured the RD50 concentrations for those things. And then he compared those mouse objective measurements. So as a 308 ppm of hydrogen chloride in a mouse is the RD50. Okay, and RD50. and yeah. by looking at what human data we could get hold of, and, and this is a little bit anecdotal, and it's sort of mostly related to industrial accidents and things like that for these individual chemicals, he concluded that at the RD50 in the mouse of any irritant chemical, most people would find it really pain, really excruciatingly painful to be exposed to that concentration, right? So it's a, a reasonably good rough guide to how bad things might be. Now, the RD50 of hydrogen chloride is 308 ppm, but the RD50 of choline, I haven't got it in front of me, but it's something like 0.5 of a part per million. It's tiny. 0.5. Oh my 0.5 ppm, something like that, or a few ppm. It's very, very potent. So a tiny amount of acrolein gives you a severe effect in mice. And, and humans also report exposure to acrolein or formaldehyde, the next one up, as being really quite painful and unpleasant. So, so there's a, a, a huge range of, you know, orders of magnitude range in the potency of these different irritant chemicals. But they're all having the same sort of effects of pain, pain to the eyes and nose. And basically, uh, the evidence is that these things are fractionally additive. So if you've mm-hmm. got 308 ppm of, well, so you've still got 100 ppm of hydrogen chloride and 100 ppm of hydrogen bromide, uh, then that's equivalent to, you just sum those two and express them as a fraction of, say, 300. You know, you're, you, you're, you, you're approaching the RD50 then. If you get 100 of those and 100 of the other one, you're getting pretty close, right? So mm-hmm. that's the way we treat it in toxicology. But I, I'm still a bit concerned about how that relates to what humans do in real fire scenarios. And, of course, the problem is we can't do the experiment. And the nearest experiment I can get to, what the effect these things are having, these immediate effects, are very similar to the effects of riot control agents like CS gas mm-hmm. that cause tearing and pain to the eyes, which are used to control people, of course. And we have some quite nice data for the effects of, of CS gas from experiments conducted on human, in quotes, volunteer soldiers uh, in the army. And so they, they were uh, some experiments done on this, very, and, and they published experiments, where volunteers, where these poor volunteers go into a chamber and they were exposed to CS gas at the mouse RD50 concentration. And they were given a little task like threading nuts and bolts of different sizes together to see how badly they were affected. And then, then the former unkindly, they ramped up the concentration with time while these poor soldiers are being exposed in this shed. And what they reported was that when they went into the uh, round about the RD50 concentration from clean air, the first effect was it was in incredibly incapacitating and painful and they couldn't really perform you know but they stayed in there for a while and gradually they adapted a little bit to it so 
even when they ramped up the concentration, they kind of managed to survive, but it was very unpleasant. Mm. At the end of the test, they put a new group of soldiers in at the now higher concentration, and they were absolutely dumbfounded. They couldn't perform at all, and they had to come straight out. So that's the only bit of sort of feel like scientific data that we've got on this. You know, this is very, very difficult to get decent data. But it sort of corroborates that the the mouse test has given us a reasonably good steer for how badly people would be affected by these things. And it's about one of the best tools we have. But we're taking in the context of what human data reports we have that we can where we can establish a human response to a reasonably well-known concentration to try and validate it. But it's all a bit vague, you know. It's, we're never going to get the perfect answer because we can't do the actual defined experiment. So uh, you've mentioned the crawling... What about the effects of hydrogen fluoride? Do you also uh, are familiar with those? Because yeah, we are now quite with the introduction of of all the electric vehicles. HF is known to be one of the products of combustion in in these fires, and it's often mentioned as the let's say the game changer in the toxicity of smoke produced in in uh, electric vehicle fires. So maybe how how about the HF? Yeah, right. Well, it's funny enough, I didn't. Somebody asked me about this a couple of days ago in the context of battery fires and things. Yeah, so basically we've got the halogen acid gases, which are basically HF, HCl, HBr, and hydrogen iodide, right? HI. Mm. That's the chemical series. In terms, and, and there are different effects that these have, right? So the first thing which, which we've just been talking about is the immediate painful effect of exposure. If you're in a fire, and this is in the smoke, how badly are you going to be zapped? How badly is it going to affect your ability to navigate mm-hmm. your way out and survive? And, how, and, how, and will you be able to breathe? You know, this kind of thing. And actually, uh, hydrogen fluoride is roughly comparable to hydrogen chloride. We know more about hydrogen chloride than that. But in fact, it's a weaker acid. So the, the reason these things are irritant is because they, they're acids and they dissolve and ionize in the mucous membranes of the eyes and the throat and things like that and you know so the ph drops in your and stimulates the nerves in your in your body so hydrogen fluoride in that context is probably not not as bad as hydrogen fluoride but it's sort of comparable so we treat it as roughly the same okay mm-hmm. but then the problem is if you're then exposed to, say for half an hour and you put up a dose right so this is what i was coming to so you bring up a dose in your lung of hydrogen chloride, for example, or hydrogen fluoride, then that sets off an inflammatory reaction in the lungs, which can cause severe problems and even death, depending on the dose. And there again, hydrogen fluoride is roughly comparable to hydrogen chloride, but if anything, it, it's we treat it as, as a bit worse, maybe twice as bad. And so we, we, if you look in the handbook chapters and things, you'll find uh, LC50s, right? So I have mm-hmm. to... Sorry, I have to sort of go back and just define my yeah. terms again here. So we've got two <laughs> separate phenomena here. We've got a concentration-related phenomenon. That's the RD50, immediate painful effect. And then we've got the effect of a dose, right? And mm-hmm. so the, the classical uh, way of looking at assessing the toxicity of a dose of an irritant material or anything else is that you expose a group of rats for a, period, a fixed period of time, say half an hour, uh, to different concentrations, and then you observe them afterwards for four, up to 14 days afterwards to see how badly their lungs are affected or whatever. And by exposing them to different concentrations, you work out the LC50, which is the 
concentration resulting in the death of half the animals. Within this observation time? Within this, not yeah, within the, not, defined, not immediately. For a defined, exactly, for a defined occupation time. So, so to get the, the dose that's lethal, you have to multiply the time by the concentration mm. again, the CT dose, right? So I think that the dose of hydrogen chloride that is lethal is something like 114,000 parts per million minutes, mm. okay? So any combination of concentration, so high concentration for a short time. That was for hydrogen uh, chloride. Chlor- okay. I've got the actual numbers here somewhere if you want. <laughs> You're a walking handbook. <laughs> That's <laughs> brilliant. It's on this. Right, I've got it here. Okay, so yes, yeah, so, right. So hydrogen chloride, if you breathe 114,000 mm-hmm. parts per million minutes, yeah? Yeah. That will kill half a group of exposed rats. Okay. Now, normally, to, to translate that to human hazard, we would put in a safety factor, maybe a factor of 10. You know, we wouldn't want to expose anybody to more than a tenth of that, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm giving you, a, I'm trying to give you a relative, a, a rough guide, right? So that's hydrogen chloride. The figure I have for hydrogen fluoride is mm-hmm. 87,000 ppm minutes. So it's not that much different. It's, you know, fairly similar, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's what. So so again, you've got two effects of hydrogen fluoride. You've got the immediate painful effect, which we should worry about on affecting your escape and your breathing. And then we've got the post-exposure two or three hours to the next 48 hours. Over the next 48 hours, will you get serious lung damage? That's where we're worried about the 87,000, you know, the dose issue, right? Okay. Yeah. Well, there's a third problem with hydrogen fluoride, yeah. which is unique, if you like, to hydrogen fluoride. Hydrogen fluoride will dissolve in water to make hydrofluoric acid, right? Mm-hmm. Hydrofluoric acid, as I said before, is quite weakly associated. So if you spill hydrofluoric acid on your skin, it, it's an acid, so it can cause skin burns. Uh, just as hydrogen hydrochloric acid or sulfuric acid will cause skin burns. Mm-hmm. There's a, but there's a problem because when, if you if you pour hydrogen chloric acid onto your skin, it immediately burns your skin and causes nasty acid burns, but then it's combined and gone and you know, neutralized by the skin, if you like, right? So it's a sort of immediate effect. Hydrogen fluoride, hydrofluoric acid partly remains in covalently bonded form, and it, it sort of, it, so it doesn't disappear. It stays where it was, and it eats its way into your skin. So hydrofluoric acid burns if you pour any onto your skin are very very nasty and are well recognized special hazard and the way i think memory that you treat that is with calcium oxalate or something you have to use a specific antidote to combine with the hydrogen fluoride to mop it up and remove it from the skin so that is a special concern it's not so much the vapor as the acid itself which can form when you have, let's say, wet skin and it, it, it comes in contact. Yeah. I mean, one, one issue that was raised to me once was, I think, in the context of batteries and car mechanics and things, where if you've got a bit of hydrofluoric acid formed and it's spilt around an, an engine compartment or something and you go in there and work on it and you touch it and get it on your skin, then you can have a problem, uh, which has to be dealt with. Uh, so, so we have, like, real data comes from rodents pretty much. 
because that's the, let's say the easiest and probably most humanitarian thing to to, to study. Uh, we're still talking about animal studies, but uh, but yeah, uh, and then. To go from these RD50, LC50 concentrations on rodents to humans, eventually you're left with an issue that you don't really have good data, minus the gentlemen uh, who studied monoxide to <laughs> incapacitate themselves, which, which is uh, impressive <laughs> and crazy in a way. But, but we don't have good, like, well-controlled experiments on, on, on humans. You only have, to some extent, either anecdotal data or you have, let's say, post-fire service where the concentrations and doses are in a way uncertain. You have to figure them out backwards, like engineer them backwards, right? That's uh, right. That's, so basically what, what I say is that you need to look at all these, data, all these data sets have their strengths and weaknesses. And the best way to come to a, a best understanding is to draw on all of them through their strengths, if you like, and try yeah. and try and come up with a best answer. I mean, for example, for the uh, hydrogen chloride, for example, there was a lot of work done uh, with baboons, with primates at Southwest okay. Research in the United States. This is the work of Hartzell. And he was doing his work at the same time as I was doing my shuttle box work with the CO. He was doing similar sorts of work, and I advised him to set up some kind of shuttle box. So he set up a, a chamber where he put baboons in the chamber, a baboon, um, and exposed the baboon, baboons for five-minute periods to various individual gas atmospheres, like carbon monoxide, and found out the dose that would cause incapacitation with an escape paradigm. That's what I recommended that he try. So basically, after five minutes, he would sound a signal, and the baboon would be able to press the lever to open the door and escape from the chamber. And then he would expose to higher and higher concentrations until he found that they failed to perform that task. And one of the gases he used was a acrolein, I think. Yes, he did use acrolein. Hartzell and Kaplan, this, this work was done by. Mm. And another one was hydrogen chloride. And obviously, by doing it on baboons, we're getting much, much closer to doing it on humans. You know, we, it, that's why I think the primate mm. data is limited that it was. And you have to be very careful what you do, with, obviously, with the primates. But it gives us something much, much closer effects on humans. What he found was that, but again, it's a very simple test. You know, it's always difficult because the baboon was trained and all he had to do was press a lever to get out mm. of a small box. Whereas the equivalent scenario for a human is you're in your flat, you open the door and you find the corridor full of smoke and you've got to think, will I make it to the door to the stairs? Can I get down the stairs? You know, it's a, it's a much more complex and difficult scenario that the human is confronted by. But nevertheless, they found that the baboon was able to perform this task up to, and I forget the exact figure, but something like 10,000 ppm of hydrogen chloride and around about 1,000 ppm of acrolein, right? Now, I've told you that the mouse RD50 for acrolein is something like 5 or 0.5 ppm or something. You know, we're talking about orders of magnitude differences here. And so it's a very, very difficult situation to interpret and carry across to human fire safety design. And, of course, there's a lot of argument about it when you're trying to set standards and things because some people, depending on their interests, <laughs> might say, oh, well, this is harmless because these baboons could get out at these incredibly high concentrations. Why do we need to worry about acid gases? And I say, well, hang on, that's not quite what's facing a human in a real scenario. 
you know, whereas others will say, well, if the mouse is doing this, you know, we should be very stringent about it. So it's really quite a problem is to arrive at a sensible solution. And we're all the time referencing to research, 70s, 80s. Are research like this are, are still carried uh, this day or we switch to other models, other ways of studying yeah. it? No. So what's happening now is that nobody really is doing any cute combustion toxicology animal research. You know, that's, mm. that's that, that was more or less finished in the 70s. And at some extent, we don't really need to do a lot more of that. I think where it's very interesting is to look at what happens to real people in real scenarios. And I think some of these tools that we have now enable us to better assess what they've been exposed to. And and I, I think I'm making some headway by comparing the exposure conditions that we can assess with the effects on people in mm. real scenarios. And so I'm, I'm very, very interested in this behavioral effect of smoke exposure. And I also paid a lot of attention to what people said about the irritancy of the smoke they experienced in real instance. And what I'm kind of finding is that if you get a mixed fuel fire load, like of total contents of a building or train on fire or a, a heavy goods vehicle on fire in a tunnel or something like that, then when people are exposed to that kind of smoke, they do say it was very irritant, it stung my eyes, it was painful to breathe, it hurt my chest. That, that, they say things mm -hmm. like that. But what they don't seem to say is, it was so bad that I collapsed from the sheer pain of it, or it was so painfully bad. You know, there's, it seemed to be some kind of limit to it. Now, mm -hmm. obviously, it can depend on the fuel mix and the exact proportions of different gases and things that are in that smoke. And I've started looking at fuel loads. Mm -hmm. I've started saying, okay, what is the fire load in a typical flat you might live in? And other people have done that from a point of view of, of combustion loads. But I'm looking at it from the point of view of toxicity. I said, okay, what is the elemental composition of the total fuel load of a flat? What percentage of the total combustible mass is carbon? What is hydrogen? What is chlorine? What is nitrogen? You know? Again, it obviously depends on, on what's in these buildings and things. But what I'm coming up with is that if you take, I mean, if you're talking about a domestic scenario now, if you set fire to your sofa at home, when furniture is often the first thing ignited in a fire, then the elemental composition of the coverings and foams in that sofa will be about 60% carbon and about 10% nitrogen, which means that you're going to get a lot of carbon monoxide in that fire, but you're also going to get quite a lot of hydrogen cyanide. So if, you, if your sofa burns and you're in the same room or the, the door is open and the smoke goes upstairs to your bedroom, the mix that you're, you're inhaling there is going to have significant quantities of CO and cyanide in, depending on the combustion conditions and, and things like that. But if you look at the a bigger fire scenario, so supposing that's the same scenario now, you've got a fire in a domestic room, but now the room has gone to flash over and it's okay. in a block of flats or a hotel or something like that. And you've now got a plume flowing out from that room and filling the building all the corridors in that building through which people are trying to escape. What are the ratios of different toxic gases in the fire smoke plume? And, and what are the proportions 
of elements in the fuel mix that produce that smoke. And when I do that, I find it's quite interesting because if you add up all the items in a flat, so you've got the books in the bookcase, you've got the, ch the modern chairs and tables, you've got the doors on the cupboards, you've got the carpets, you've got the sofas, you've got the TV, all that stuff. I tried to work out what is the composition of that entire thing. And what I came up with was a ratio of um, around about 50 to 60% carbon because most fuel loads are hugely dominated by cellulosic materials mm. and wood is 50% carbon. About four and a half, three to 4% uh, nitrogen, right? Now, that's an interesting ratio because in, when you then convert that into toxic products, it means that the toxicity from asphyxium point of view is going to be dominated by carbon monoxide because from all that carbon, you're going to produce a lot of carbon monoxide. But there will be a significant amount of cyanide, but it will only make a minor contribution to the overall toxicity because it's only 3 or 4% of the, of the elemental composition of the fuel that's burning, right? Mm -hmm. So I think this gives us some interesting developing tools, you see, to try and assess these hazards. Similarly, you can think, well, okay, what items in there would have chlorine in? Well, PVC window flames have, are polyvinyl chloride. There's a lot of chlorine in that. And there's, it's add, added in various other items that might be in your furniture. So you can, and I've worked, I think I've worked out about, I can't remember the figure now, but, but 2% 2, 2 chlorine. So yes, there would be irritant, there would be some amount of acid gas there, but it's not going to be huge. And when I looked at what people said when they're in, exposed to these kind of smokes, as I said, they, they did say it was irritant. So it contributed to the overall effect on their decision behavior about whether to enter and try and move smoke. But that's brilliant. You said that RD50 of HCl is so much uh, lower, like 300 ppm. So, so it makes sense. It's order of magnitude less in the in the elemental matrix of, of your room. Well, we've got to convert maybe... that into a oh, oh, oh. you see. So uh, based on the data we've got, mostly from our tube furnace experiments, I weighted according to the mass percentages of different items on the yields we'd actually measured in, in our experiments to calculate the concentration ratios that you'd get if you burn that mass of fuel and disperse it into a given volume, okay? And so, as I said, what, what comes out of that is that for this particular fuel mix, which I think would be fairly typical of lots of mixed fuels, the CO is going to dominate on the asphyxians. But you could see that there's going to be sufficient irritants in there to cause some problems to people, but not, not unlikely to actually have them on the floor, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think the main contribution of the irritants in, in everyday fires, normal normal sorts of fires, is, is there, it's an issue, and it contributes to this decision-making process. What I'm finding in, in these incidents is that, as I say, occupants have this very difficult behavioral decision to make when they're confronted by smoke. Do I stay or do I go? And some people will plunge straight into that smoke, depending on its concentration and irritancy, and they may have a good chance of survival, whereas other people will stay where they were uh, and shut the door and stay in the shelter in place, okay? Mm. And then, of course, as the incident develops, they may have to revisit that decision uh, several times. You know, they might go back half an hour later and open the door and see what the conditions are, and, of course, usually it's got worse by then. It's the interaction between the toxicity and the physiology and the behavioural scenario that people find themselves in. So, so in, in a way, actually, <clears throat> the, the presence of this irritants at the low dose that's 
irritant but not yet lethal can raise the awareness that the atmosphere is toxic because uh, CO to know it's well, that, that, right. And people have suggested that. Some people have even suggested that it might be a good idea to have a bit of irritants in. But like, <laughs> okay. like we have okay. stenching agents in gas, you know? So mm-hmm. you, if you have a gas leak in your house, you have a stenching agent in there, so you smell yeah. it and report it. I don't really like to follow that line. I, no, no, I, 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 it's I think, not a recommendation. I think where I'm, where I'm kind of getting to is that for the majority of normal, you know, what's normal, mixed, mixed fuel fires, What's a, a, a useful design term, as I said some time ago, is to look at the smoke density and visibility yeah. distance. Mm. And if, this, if the a visibility distance is less than about four, three to four meters, which is uh, a optical density per meter of about 0.25, isn't it? Yeah. Then you're, you're at that threshold where, uh, and this is from the work of Wood and Brian years ago in the United States, where they looked at, and the UK, where they looked at lots of different fire incidents. But 70% of people will turn back rather than plunge into and try and get through smoke once the visibility gets down to about three to four meters. Okay. They'll be reluctant mm-hmm. to enter that. They'll stay behind. And at that concentration, it's not only you can't see, but you're getting into the significant quantities of these organic and, and inorganic acid gas irritants, that smoke is going is likely to be painful to breathe and sting your eyes and and it all adds to the problems, you know? Yeah. So I think that's a good rule of thumb. Now the other thing I've done with recently with this is to say, okay, now supposing you are exposed to this smoke of a certain density and you breathe it for a certain time and so you inhale a certain dose of irritant smoke particulates. And then you go to hospital, what happens to you then, right? And so now I'm correlating the exposure dose related to the average CO and smoke concentrations that people have been exposed to during the time they're in the fire with what happened to them afterwards. And what I'm finding here is that if you've inhaled something like about two to more than two, well, about 300 milligrams of soot particulates, right? Mm-hmm. Throughout your exposure. So you might have been there for an hour, you might have been there for 10 minutes, but if, it, if the total amount of particulates you've inhaled is about 300 milligrams, then you're likely to have a severe uh, lung inflammation and you might need quite heavy treatment in hospital to survive that a few hours later, right? So that's 300 milligrams. And the threshold, yeah, about 300. And the threshold, is probably somewhere around about 200, right? So most people, if they're exposed to less than about 200 milligrams, inhale 200 milligrams of particles, then in a fire, then they probably won't need much in the way of treatment. They're probably going to come, be the cough a bit, but they'll be okay. Maybe a sore throat the next day, but nothing too serious. And that correlates with typically with about 20% carboxyhemoglobin. Because all these things are scaling together, right? So if you've got this is, this is the sort of tool I'm starting to use these days. So I'm saying, well, if if the visibility distance is so much, then the CO concentration is so much. So a certain time of exposure will give you a certain dose, right? Ten meters would correspond to something like 0.1 gram cubic meter. So if your average breath is is like four liters, then every breath you take in this uh, setting is something like four milligrams of, of soot. So you have literally 50 breaths in that well, 10 meter range to reach that. that. 
it, of course, way, it's back of the envelope. But, but, well, but, well, but we are talking about these kind of. They are. They are. Yeah. This is somewhat back of the envelope. But what? Well, the way I've done these calculations is to measure the particulate concentrations during, you know, experimentally in a furnace test. I measure the smoke dense, optical density per meter, the particulate concentration, milligrams per liter, the silo concentration and the cyanide concentration, et cetera, et cetera. So I measure the concentrations of all these things during the test. And then from the mass of material decomposed, you can work out the yields. But in, in this it's hard to do it on the on an audio situation, but yeah. in this context, it's the concentration relate ratios that we're interested in. Yeah, but it's the amount, and, and then you have to assume a certain breathing rate. So I'm assuming these people are actively escaping the fire, and they're breathing about 20 liters of air a minute. Mm. Um, and so, breathing 20 liters of air a minute at the exposure concentrations that I'm getting, I'm ending up with that kind of figure and also something that needs more more evaluation but i think you can I, I think the picture i'm trying to paint is that we we are starting to get emerging from this work some fairly useful practical tools and i'm hoping people can apply david i must stop you it's a, it's a pain to me to, to stop you because that has been one of the most enjoyable talks i have had in this podcast so far we are one hour-ish into the recording, looking at the time, which nears to two hours now. Um, I would love to learn more about yields. I would love to learn more about equivalency ratio. There is a device in my laboratory which is called the Purser Furnace, which I would yeah. love to, which I would love to talk with you as well. So uh, it's inevitable that we will meet again. I assume you have enjoyed it, based on the fact that you're sitting here with me for two hours. <laughs> and, yeah, we'll uh, give her the opportunity. <laughs> let's continue this. I, I think the amount of knowledge that was uh, conveyed in this podcast episode was immense, and I hope it was much more digestible for uh, uh, everyday fire engineer to understand the, the basic concepts, fundamentals, the complexity of toxicity and toxic hazards as a separate beings, uh, and as a starting point for them to learn more. And certainly I appreciate your engineering mind that uh, does not uh, push you only to understand the, the, the science behind it, but you are talking about tools all the time. Yeah. And as an engineer, that is uh, what we need. Uh, so, so David, now you have a chance to close this episode and then I turn off the recording and we, uh, we're, and we schedule the next one. So okay. uh, may, maybe uh, s something for the end of the episode on... Yeah, okay. Well, just to sort of wrap things up, uh, yeah. And, uh, I, th I suppose I, I hope I've kind of whetted people's appetite for <laughs> trying to to understand that, and, and I hope I haven't dismayed them all by the complexity of it. I mean, there undoubtedly is complexity there. There are also undoubtedly difficulties uh, that some fire engineers don't face because some fire engineers can go away and actually do the experiment they need to get the data they need. We have to take somewhat indirect approach to correlate different bits of evidence as i've explained to try and arrive at a consensus understanding of what's happening but i mean i i try to uh, end on a message of positive message you know which is i think we do have a much better understanding than we did of what's going on and that in many ways it is possible to reduce some of these things to fairly straightforward tools that can be practically applied by engineers and scientists to understand 
particular scenarios and for design and evaluation context. So I think I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you. You leave me on a cliffhanger. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you so much, David. And that's it. Thank you for listening. Uh, David left us all on a cliffhanger. But, uh, well, I'll share you a secret. I have something more recorded with him and uh, that will see the light in, in some weeks. And this is going to be great as well. As I mentioned in the episode, I have a device in my laboratory that everyone refers to the, as the purser's furnace. So we're definitely going to cover that in future. And uh, some more chemistry and physics of how smoke is created and why is it harmful. I think it's uh, very important to learn these lessons. And in these two episodes, I've learned more about toxicology and toxicity of smoke than I guess in my whole professional education as a fire safety engineer. I find that kind of crazy, but that is how it is. We are very good at cutting out chemistry out of fire science for a reason. It's complicated, maybe the most complicated thing of all. But yeah, it's interesting to learn about it and understand it better. So maybe we can model better and maybe we can understand what we are modeling better. Actually, that's, that's some great goal to achieve. So I will not even attempt to summarize this talk with David. It was so, so much information. Really, uh, I very rarely have interviews in which my role is mostly to take notes and enjoy instead of, uh, of driving the conversation that much. So I, I really appreciated and enjoyed being lectured by, by David. It was fun. I hope it was fun for you as well. And if you like fun, if you like fun in the Fire for Science show, I will have more of that coming your way next episode, next Wednesday. See you there. Cheers. Bye. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.